You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I still have a typewriter at home, which was not electric. Mm. I still have it. Wow. That's an artifact. Henning Mankell is the author of the Kurt Wallander Mysteries, which began with the novel Faceless Killers in 1991 and include The Dogs of Riga, The White Lioness, The Man Who Smiled, Sidetracked, The Fifth Woman, One Step Behind, Firewall, and The Pyramid. He's the author of Daniel and The Man from Beijing, his latest Kurt Wallander novel is The Troubled Man. Thank you for joining me, Henning. It's nice to be here. Henning, um, as I read this novel, all I could think of was the one of uh, uh, Faulkner's, William Faulkner's most famous quotes was, the past is not dead, it is not even past. And I think that's very true in this novel, isn't it? Yes, it's true in this novel, and I, I guess it's also true in life that that the past will always be with us. I, for example, think that I have some friends that unfortunately have died, but I, I don't understand why they shouldn't continue to be my friends even though they are dead. So the past will always be with us. But obviously in this novel, the past is very much alive, you can say. That's true. Now, uh, one of the things that, that strikes me uh, about this novel and about what you were just saying is that um, we like to think of, of, often we think of ghosts as, you know, kind of apparitions of the dead. But I think actually they're more the mistakes, the things that we've done in our life that haunt us to this very day, the decisions we've made, what we've done. And I think that... Um, Kurt Wallander is a, is a haunted man, and, and he's the troubled man. And I'm guessing that the man sitting right over there whom, to whom I'm speaking is also a troubled man. Uh, yes, I think all of us, I can say that I guess the man who's sitting opposite me here is also a troubled man. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really know anyone who is not troubled. But uh, to talk more precisely about this novel and Mr. Wallander, uh, he is now in his 60s. And what happens when people are about 60, there are certain things. And among those things are that you start to look a little backwards, to ask yourself, what did I do with my life? And to many people, that can be a rather scary thing to look backwards. I mean, to me, it's not. Because among all the privileges I have, and I have many, I know that, is that I don't feel, I don't have afraid I'm not afraid of looking backwards because I'm doing today what I was dreaming about when I was young and for many people that can be rather scary to think that the dreams they had they let go of or they forgot about them or so that can be rather difficult to look backwards which you do when you get older and this is what Wallander does and this is also a part of the story now, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit just about your past. You started writing and when you were 19, was it? Am I correct? I think, well, I started to write as soon as I 
had learned the craft. Of, my grandmother taught me to read and write when I was six years old, and I can still remember vaguely the sensation of being able to put a word after another word to make a sentence and another sentence, and then all of a sudden you had the story. That was a miraculous event in my life, and I believe that I, I never dreamt about doing anything else, really. But it's true that uh, when I was 18, I think, I wrote a theater play that actually was bought and accepted and produced by a theater. And then when I was 23, I think, I, I had my first novel published. So I started very early on, yes. Now, uh, this kind of early success has, you know, informed your ability to tell a story. And I'd like you to talk about how you, if as a very young man, the kind of stories you felt, you saw, that moved through you, that you were able to commit to paper, were one kind of thing. Uh, now you're, you're, you know, considerably older. So I'd like you to talk about how the stories that you've told have changed and how the stories you're telling now um, feel to you as stories? Um, I think that the only novel or I can write is a novel that I would like to read myself. That is the only definition of my writing I can give you. Um, people ask me where the stories come from, and I say they could come from anywhere. They could come from something I hear, read, think, dream, or whatever. But there must be something more in order for me to, to see that that story is something I could really write about. And it is that it must be a question involved. Why is this? Why are those people doing like that? So if I hear something that raises a question in me, then that could be a start of a story. Now, what, what that could be, that could be many things. As you know, that... Out of the 40 novels I've written, only 25% is crime fiction, so I do a lot of various kinds of writing. But what I try to do always is to tell a story that has something to do with my life and with the life of others that are living together with me in the times that we see today. The human condition of 2011 would be a very good starting of a story, I think. Now, you've read, lived two lives, in a sense, in that you've spent about half your time in Africa and half your time in Sweden. So talk about that kind of split for you. That's an interesting choice to make. Uh, tell us when you first found your, yourself interested in Africa. It's true that I'm, I'm living uh, with one foot in the sand and one foot in the snow, and that I have done now for many, many years. Uh, the beginning of this was when I was very young, um, 18, 19, 20. I, I had a very strong urge, feeling that I wanted to see the world from outside the European egocentricity. I wanted another perspective of it. And that was the basic reason why I came to Africa. Why I didn't go to Asia or to South America is just because the cheapest air ticket I could find uh, led me to, to Africa, a small country in West Africa, Guinea-Bissau, that at that time still was a Portuguese colony. 
And this is now more than 40 years ago. And why I go back to Africa in June this year is mainly because of the same reason. I believe that Africa teaches me things about the human condition that I would never ever understand by only being in Europe. So that is the basic reason. But now this is a short answer to a very complicated question. But basically this is the, the beginning of my life in Africa and Europe. Well, I, I'd like you to talk about how your craft of, how that decision back then changed your craft of fiction and also your sense of story. I'm guessing the kind of stories you found there were very, very different and required a different voice and I think a different level of perception on your part as just somebody looking at the world in order to take in the different kinds of stories you were seeing around you. Well, this is a very interesting question. Because my experience now tells me that it's absolutely opposite to what you uh, presume. Uh, I, when I went to Africa, I was looking for the differences. And the only thing I found was similarities. And this is so, so exciting to really to understand that we are all family. We are all reacting in very much the same way to various things like... Uh, sadness or anger or happiness. But then you can start looking for the fine details in the differences. And I would say that, for example, as, as a writer, I have seen that the Africans are telling stories in a much less linear way than we do. Normally we tell a story like once upon a time and then you go from the beginning to the end. The Africans normally are much more jumping around in the story, between also between reality and dream, between the ending or the, the beginning. And I think that that has inspired me to be to challenge the linear way of telling a story. And that is one of the things that Africa has given me. Uh, there is obviously many other things too, but that is at least one specific thing for me as a writer. I dare to complicate my stories in another way after having experienced the African way of telling a story. Now, you've written um, literary fiction, you've written plays, and you've written genre fiction. And these are all very kind of, uh, in some ways, they can be very different forms. Um, and or they can be very similar. So I'd like you to talk to me about both the differences and the similarities and how your work in each type of fiction or each type of writing informs the other. I've got to guess, maybe I'm wrong here again, that your work in theater really informs your the work in the novels. Well, uh, your questions are good because they are difficult to answer to. But I think that when I have, let's say, today, this morning in San Francisco, I heard someone say something, and that raises a question in me, I think, yeah, this may, might be a story. The first thing I then have to decide is, what is this? Is this a theater play? Is it a screenplay? Or is it a novel? Or in, in that case, what kind of novel? 
That is one of the first things I have to decide. And it depends on what's happening in me relating to that story. And when I have made that decision, when, then I think I've made a really, really important decision. And then you, I start to have to ask myself, what kind of music will it be in this story? Will it be a fast story? Will it be a slow story? And all these things. And then I will start to think about what you will call eventually the plot. Because whatever you write, even a poem does have a plot. So you have to think, how is the story in detail? So this is a long process when I'm thinking about these things. But then as a writer, I would say it is the same difficulties whether you write crime fiction or whether you write something else. To find uh, the strength of your language, the way of making this story fascinating for an audience. I believe the real good book is like you have to open up to invite the reader to sit at your table, in a way, to eat your food, the food that you put on the table. If you do not manage to do this invitation to the audience or to the reader, then I think you have failed. And that goes for whether it is crime fiction or something else. So in many ways, I think the process, when the basic decisions are done, are very much the same then. But, uh, I, but if I fail in the first decision, I can end up in a, a cul-de-sac, in a, in, a, in a street with no ending. It has happened that I have decided to tell a story in a novel, and after 100 pages realized, no ending, this is wrong, this is actually a screenplay. And then I had to start all over again. It hasn't happened often, but it has happened, yes. I'd, I'd like you to talk, you've created some enduring characters, both for your readers and for yourself. And these are like people, I think, you bring into our lives and you bring into your own life. And so I'm thinking of, of course, Kurt Wallander, but also Sophia. So talk about bringing these characters, you know, giving birth to a character, essentially. And what's interesting to me is that it's not just a baby. You're giving <laughs> birth to a fully formed human being, and that's a, a different process. Uh, I can use exactly the words that you use now, uh, a fully formed character. Well, honestly, I hope I do not do that, because I think the only way of creating a character in, in a novel that can interest people is to make a character that, that is always changing that is always in the process of being a different person. You will not be the same person tomorrow as you are today. And the same goes for me or for the lovely technicians in, on the other side of the glass window here. We are all changing people. And that, I really think, is the challenge. How to create a person that develops the whole time. And uh, if I fail to do that, then I, I don't think I have written a good book. You might say that this is even more obvious when you write a screenplay or a theater play that would be absolutely dead if a person on the stage is, or in, on the screen is the same in the ending as he or she is in the beginning. So I would say all art is about showing how people are transforming themselves in relation to what happens to them. 
And this is the real challenge of being an artist, I think. Well, let's talk a little bit about Kurt Wallander. I, I believe he came into being before Sophie, am I correct? Or are they I contemporaries? Think, yes, you are yeah. correct. Yeah. <clears throat> well, what made you decide to write a, a mystery series? And did you know when you first created this character that you would be returning to him again and again? Absolutely not. I had no, neither an idea nor an intention to come back to him. It was only later that I realized that I had created a sort of instrument on which I could play different tunes. Uh, in the beginning, uh, 22 years ago now, I had been in Africa for a very long time. And when I came back to Sweden, I realized that the problems of xenophobia was was raising in a in a, what I thought was a very dangerous way, so I decided to write about that. Now, acts of racism and xenophobia to me is has a sort of criminal approach, you can say. So therefore, I, I decided to use a crime plot. And when I ca came that far, I realized I needed a police officer. So a day in May 1989, it must have been, I created this character. And I can tell you that the name of him I took from the telephone book from the southern part of Sweden. It was very, very much like that. And I, I wanted from the beginning to show how difficult it is to be a good police officer and how impossible it is if you do not see the changes in society. And uh, I wrote one novel and I wrote two and I wrote three. Now, after the third novel, something interesting happened. And I call it the diabetes syndrome. I spoke with a close friend of mine, a female doctor who had read the novels, and I asked her, what kind of disease would you give this man? And without one second of hesitation, she answered diabetes. This man is going to get diabetes sooner or later, probably sooner. So then I gave him diabetes in the fourth novel, and that made him even more popular because people get diabetes in reality. And in another way, you can say no one can imagine a character like James Bond stopping to give himself a shot of insulin. That would be ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous for Wallander because he's like you and me in a way. So that confirmed to me that what interests people, like it interests me, is to see how people change. Physically, mentally, politically, economically, whatever. And uh, so if you look very closely on Wallander in this last novel and compare him with the Wallander in the beginning 20 years ago, you'll see the same person, but you will see a man who has transformed himself in many ways. He's lived through 22 years of life, just as have we all. I was a different tw person 22 years ago, and I'm sure you were as well. Yeah, and so was the reader. Mm. And this is what I, I think is the interesting part. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, too, that uh, because these novels are really, though you're the creator of them, you seem very aware that the whole, the reading experience is a collaboration that the readers bring a lot to this novel and that by virtue of your recognition of this fact, I think that that's something that you um, 
include as an element of your comp- composition? I mean, that as you're reading, as you're writing these your books, whether they're the Wallander novels, Sophia, or or your various you know standalone novels, you you seem well aware that you've got a reader out there that whom you don't know who's collaborating with you on the other end. So it's an interesting uh, problem for you, isn't it? Yes, it is. But on the other hand, I think in a way I answered how I do it by saying that the only novel I can write is a novel that I would like to read myself. And obviously I have proved that I can do that because and that what I like to read is also readable for many, many millions of people all around the world. And and then I can also see the other thing that uh, I get an enormous amount of uh, letters and emails, which are not to me, but they are actually to Wallander. Really? Yeah, they are. <laughs> and it is like, I mean, Sherlock Holmes still gets letters to Baker Street in London to, uh, 100 years after his death, literary death. And uh, what is happening is that many people has looks upon him as a friend that they take out of the book and take with them. And so do I, actually. When I read a novel that fascinates me, I can also look upon a main character like a friend or, for that matter, also an enemy. Uh, I can look at the painting and see a person that I, I hope that I one day will meet in reality. So I really think that art in many ways it's a question of, of finding a, a friends that you can take with you out in life and that you can use as someone with whom you can have a discussion or someone that you can trust or whatever. And I think this is basically what art is about. This is something you've been really successful at. And I'd like to, to talk a little bit about um, some of the changes that you've put through you're a man who has a, a very clear um, awareness of the impact of the politics of nations, of the governance of nations, both on a local, very gritty level, just at the absolute lowest level, um, and, and also on a on a global level as well. And, and you work this into your the plots of your novels and into your characters' lives in the same way I think that it's informed your life. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because it's a deliberate decision on your part. It's not something that's incidental, is it? No, no. Uh, As a writer, I am an intellectual. And as an intellectual, I think I have a responsibility to be part of the dialogue and this discussion of what kind of world do we live in both in the small perspective and in the huge global perspective. And I do not see any contradiction between those two things. Uh, mostly I react to certain things by writing about it. But I can also in certain moments decide to be an activist because I think that that's more important. And that can go for, this, for example, the work I've done in relation to AIDS in Africa or mm-hmm. the fact that I'm now building a village for orphans in Mozambique and it can be things for the Palestinian people but basically it is the role that you have if you are or an intellectual you have a certain responsibility and uh, I try to do as best as I can and I hope at least when I die one day that the world hasn't become 
worse during the time I lived here. I think that is. That I do what I try. I do what I can do, and everyone can do a little more than one thinks. I guess. Now, um, you've written, done quite a bit of, of theater, and I'd like you to just talk about that because that's a very different form from the novel. Uh, you're in the novel. The collaboration is with the reader's imagination. And in theater, you're collaborating with the actors who will bring essentially what readers would bring to life in their minds. The actors have to do that on the stage. So I'd like you to talk about, you know, how that changes what you're able to approach, how that changes the questions you decide to answer as theater pieces. Yeah, this is, uh, this is very interesting. First of all, I can tell you a little detail that might be funny for the listener to hear, that normally when I write a novel, I use a computer. But when I write for theater or a screen script, I do write by hand. And why is that? Well, I think that I found out long time ago that using a typewriter or a computer was in a way too fast for when you were writing a dialogue for theater or for a screen. So the rhythm and the tempo was better for me by writing with hand. And later on, actually, when I've done the play, I will, I will clean it up on a computer. But in the process of creating, I use actually a pen when I write for the script. And I, I think that's, um, it's also because another thing that what's specific with theater and uh, screen script is that you have to remember that every character does have his or her own language. We are all people that are, are talking very differently. And what really makes things living on the stage is that you really manage to give the, the different characters different languages. In a novel, it's me talking. But in a play, it is the characters talking in another way. And I think that is also a challenge. And the third thing that I, I believe is important is that when you write a novel, you in a way write everything. But when you write a play or a screenplay, you have in a way to write as little as possible. Because when an actor or a director gets the script in his or her hand, he, will, he or she will immediately try to find out where is it space for me? Where do they need me to fulfill this play on the stage? And if an uh, actor feels that everything is said in the play, then there is no challenge for him or her and then it's dead. So in that sense you can say you have to write as little as possible to give as much space as possible for an actor. So there are many, many things that are different. But on the other hand, it is, uh, for me, it is a wonderful possibility to sit alone in a room and write on a novel. And then all of a sudden I can stand up, open a door to another room that is full of people with whom I can make theater. And then one day I'll go back to the loneliness in the first room. This is a wonderful adventure to have these two possibilities. We've seen um, many of your books published here in the United States. Um, what about your your plays? Or, ha, I'm not sure. Have any been 
been produced here, and will we see any here? Uh, I have plays today all around the world, but mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, it's a bit difficult. I actually have been produced in Canada, and I know without being able to say very much in this moment, I know there are certain things going on here in the United States, so maybe in one year's time, if we meet again, I'll give you a better answer. But there are things happening, and uh, I I spend a lot of time now actually writing both for the screen and for theatre. I have actually very re recently, I have written a screenplay for about my father-in-law, Ingmar Bergman, that will be made into a feature movie and a TV series internationally. And I'm happy to say that the director will be the Danish director, Susanne Bean, who got an Oscar this year for Best Foreign Movie. So this is also an adventure that I'm starting on now. So I, I do a lot of things at the same time. That sounds really fantastic. Now, uh, Kurt Wallander, uh, has some of these have been produced uh, by the BBC, and I, the ones I saw, I, I really enjoyed. What, what did you think of the productions of them? It's not often that writers are particularly happy with what comes up on screen. I think it's easier for me because I am a playwright and director myself, so I know what to expect. And uh, actually, I also have a lot of saying, uh, not necessarily in the BBC productions, but this has also been done in, in Europe mm. for European audience. I have actually seen one of my novels being f filmed three times, really? which has been a, a rather remarkable adventure. I'm not very worried about it. Sometimes I think that the results are very good and sometimes not so good. Uh, but my, my novels will always be there, so I don't see any problem with that. But talking about Kenneth Branagh and the BBC productions, I were very happy with the result. And I can also tell you why. Not only because that Kenneth Branagh is a brilliant actor, but that BBC had an idea of, so to speak, purifying the stories, almost to make them like ancient Greek dramas where everything unnecessary was taken away. And I, I must say that I enjoyed it very, very much. And I can also give you some news now, which I wouldn't have been able to say one week ago, but now I can say it, and that Kenneth Branagh has decided to do three more, and he will start shooting the first one this summer, I think. So there will be more to come out of that. Well, that is fantastic news. I really look forward to that. Um, let's talk about your latest book, The Troubled Man. Um, it, it's based on, on some uh, stuff, some political events that took place, God, almost um, 30 years ago. And this is uh, some, some events that not many of us know about. I certainly didn't know about. So talk about the, the submarine debate. Yeah, it was in the beginning of the 80s. You're right, it's almost 30 years ago. Uh, it was in 1982 that all of a sudden there were reports coming in that there had been seen what was supposed to be Russian submarines 
inside the waters of Stockholm that would have been like having Russian submarines inside the Golden Gate Bridge or in East River or Hudson River or something like that. Uh, they, the, the Swedish military never got any one of these submarines up. Today we know that it was not Russian submarines and it's most probably that some of the incidents were nothing but that it also was American submarines that were there training together with the Swedish military without the Swedish politicians knowing about it or only some politicians knowing about it. And that is a huge scandal. That is probably one of the worst political scandals in Sweden during my lifetime and Wallander's lifetime because we were supposed to be neutral. We were to be supposed to not be a part of an alliance. And this, I would say, is an enormous hypocrisy. We never were par part of NATO because of one reason. We didn't have to, because it worked very well anyhow. So I think this is a political discussion that we still have to face in Sweden, the hypocrisy of the role Sweden played during the Cold War. And I think this book is, in a way, also a starting point for that kind of discussion that I think is important. So we also have something to deal with in Sweden. This is a case of the past not being dead and certainly not being the past. Right, you are. Now, let's talk about Wallander because it begins with an incident um, of in which he he forgets something and he's beginning to experience... A, uh, some uh, the kind of self-doubt that can really stop a man in his tracks. And he's a man who's been going for a long time. So this is a, a, a problem for him. And he is, I think, more troubled than the man who comes to him for help. I think that it must be, uh, for a police officer, it must be a really, really bad dream uh, to forget a certain piece uh, in a restaurant when he leaves. I think that would be terrifying. And obviously something that the policeman also would be... Uh, uh, he would be punished for it. Uh, but I think there is something more deep and profound in this. And something that I share with Wallander, and that the fact that when you come up to the 60s, or when you are 60, about age, you, you are forced to start to thinking about the ending that will come sooner or later. And for myself, I do not believe that I'm afraid of dying. I'm quite sure I'm not. And I know that most pains today are possible to control. But there is one thing that scares me enormously. And that is that I one day, still physically fit, that my wife come to me and say, Henning, there is something wrong with you. You are forgetting things and you are saying the same thing twice without noticing that you already said it. That the fact that I'm starting to losing my head while I'm still very much alive, that really, really scares me. And I know it scares a lot of people, and I know it scares a lot of the people listening to, to this. 
And I think we, we have to talk about it. And why shouldn't Wallander, who is now also 60, talk about it? And uh, obviously, he's now entering a world of no man's land. And I will not say more about it, but what happens to him can happen to anybody. One of the things I really loved about this novel was I thought both the way the plot and the prose and the characterization all really created this feeling of kind of the the terror of what you are talking about. And I'm wondering, um, as a prose craftsman, talk about um, going back. Does this just flow off the tip of your pen? Or do you find yourself going back and you know, carefully architecting what to us just seems like the natural world redrawn? Well, I think uh, I have spoken already a little about what starts the creative processes in my life. But I can also add one thing, and that is that when I start, finally start writing, I could start by writing the ending. I could write something in the middle, or I could write from the beginning to the end. And normally I'm also able to say this is going to be 450 pages, because I know everything about the story. So it takes a long time before I start writing. But when I am writing, then I know quite well how to write it, and there is a certain flow, as you say. And it's very rarely that I rewrite big parts of a novel. Of course, I read one proof, two proofs, and three proofs. So um, this is um, this is what I can say about my process. I've been speaking with Henning Mankell. His new novel is The Troubled Man. Thank you for joining me, Henning. Thank you. It was nice to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.